Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all here today. If you grab your Bibles, turn to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verse 19 this morning. Before we get started, let me show you a little picture here. This is the quaint little village of Esher in England. And uh, it's about an hour southwest of London. Actually, I grew up, spent most of my childhood in this town, in a house not far from here, not that, those homes specifically, but very, very close by. It's a beautiful spot, idyllic, quiet, peaceful. There's a, a field just out of view where they play cricket on, on the weekends. But don't let the quiet English charm fool you, because this house... Uh, over here, this brown one right here, that house used to be a little general store about back in the 80s, oh, actually the 70s, a little general store and a post office, and it was a scene for one of the most dastardly, dramatic, and death-defying thefts of the 1970s, and I would have gotten away with it too if it hadn't been for my mom catching me red-handed. So I was like four or five years old. We'd gone to the store for I have no idea what. And where the adults are all talking, and I'm there standing, uh, staring at the candy, which is always placed conveniently at eye level to children. And I had asked multiple times for the chocolate bar, whatever it was, like a Kit Kat bar. And my mom had said repeatedly no, but while she was distracted, I just went ahead and grabbed the candy bar and stuffed it in my pocket anyway. And I kept it carefully hidden all the way till we got home. And then, of course, my greed took over and I started eating it, and my mom called me right away. I couldn't even finish the candy bar. So, uh, needs to say, she was not happy. That's why I said it was a death-defying uh, crime. My punishment, though, was I had to walk back all the way by myself, walk all the way back to this store with the leftover candy bar in one hand and some money in the other and go up to the cashier and admit my crime and take whatever consequences will come as a result of that. I remember it was like the worst walk of my life. It was just this, this sick feeling in the pit of my stomach. It was awful. I'm guessing that was the point, right? My mom's like, yeah, mission accomplished. <laughs> uh, they didn't put me away for my crime, but um, the uh, cashier was super gracious and kind and understanding, and here's this sweet little four-year-old boy or something. They're like, oh, don't worry about it, and it was no problem. But uh, I learned a valuable lesson that day, and that's don't let your mom catch you eating. No, sorry. <laughs> The valuable lesson is, uh, is don't steal. Don't steal. That's the lesson. Uh, and that's our passage for today, right? Deuteronomy 5.19. Just two words in the Hebrew. Don't steal. Don't do it. Fairly straightforward. Like you don't need an advanced degree in Hebrew exegesis to understand this. Don't steal. All right. That's the sermon. Uh, we do have 27 more minutes left, so... We, uh, we will push a little deeper than that, and today, actually, in all seriousness, we're going to look at three key questions on this text. First, why shouldn't we steal? 
Sounds like a no-brainer, but like, we want to go into this. Why shouldn't we steal? And secondly, what motivates us to steal? Why do we do this? And finally, uh, the application, we'll get into looking at how should we be living instead. So first of all, looking at the uh, first question, commands against stealing are not unique to Judaism or to Christianity or to the Bible. Right? Pretty much every culture around the world has some basic principle of, of property rights, ownership, and theft is simply a violation of that principle. It's like, do I have to put a sign on literally everything? Like, don't take the rocks, don't touch my stuff, don't steal this. And all of this was true long before Moses came on the scene, long before we had the Ten Commandments. Theft was forbidden. I mean, think... Adam and Eve, part of their sin, right? God says, don't touch this. And what do they do? They go and they take what isn't theirs. Take it for themselves. You could go through the breasts of the book of Genesis. Think about the kings who, who come and they see a lot in his possessions. And then Abraham has to go on this big daring rescue to, to take him back. Why? Because you don't do this. You can't steal people. You can't take all their possessions. Or think about Jacob stealing his brother's blessing. So it makes an interesting side note. Stealing doesn't always involve stuff that you can hold, right? It could involve something intangible, like, like a blessing or an idea or even someone's dignity. So what we have here in the Eighth Commandment is really just an official, formal codification of something that was already assumed to be almost universally wrong. It's like God saying, look, everyone knows this is wrong, so I'm just going to make it extra crystal clear. Do not steal. But why is stealing so bad, so wrong? Well, first and foremost, it is clearly a sin against God. These are God's commands. He said it, don't do this. So when we break that command, we're directly violating God's will. But it goes a little bit deeper than that, because theft is also a complete rejection of the cosmological order that God has put in place. It's an attempt to cheat the system. Now you may be thinking, okay, come on. Look, are you saying that if I sort of steal someone else's place in line at the theme park or, or take home some notepads and pens from work or, or accidentally on purpose grab someone else's drink at a line at Starbucks. Is that really going to break the whole of creation? Well, no, the whole universe doesn't collapse in that instant. Praise God, he holds everything together Sin has warped this world, but your individual actions, as bad as they are, aren't going to grind it to a halt. But you are most definitely gumming up the works. You know, our uh, air conditioning has been slowly dying this summer. It's very sad. <laughs> and one of the, the first things the technician did when he came out to check our system is he opens it up and he wants to, to check the coils to, to look for dust and dirt and debris and, and all this gunk that can build up on there. And our ongoing persistent sin is, is kind of like that. It's slowly over time gumming everything up. 
It's incredible. In the air conditioning system, one tiny little spore pollen or, or a micron-sized piece of dust, that's not enough to wreck the system, but, but over time as they accumulate more and more and more and more and more, and before you know it, you've got a $10,000 bill staring you in the face because the whole thing has to be replaced. As we read in Isaiah 61, God says, For I, the Lord, love justice, and I hate robbery and wrong. And so it's in this sense that even your petty little thefts, however you may choose to rationalize them, are first and foremost a sin against God who hates robbery and wrong. They can slowly accumulate in a manner that is destructive, not just to your own personal spiritual life. So often we dismiss these things as like, well, it's just me, you know, I, it's, I'll deal with that later. But it's destructive to all those around you, wreaking havoc on God's good creation, which he's graciously provided for our blessing. So theft, in a way, is, is like thumbing our nose at God's uh, gracious provision, showing our displeasure towards God. And that leads us then into our second reason that theft is bad, because it tears apart our communities. Because you can't love someone and also take their stuff. Love is patient and kind, Paul says. Not envious, not greedy. Greater love has no one than this than to take all their best stuff from their friends. No? Oh, right. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Look, if loving acts of sacrificial service work to build up the body of Christ, then self-centered acts of stealing slowly erode and undermine and corrupt community, which in the end hurts everyone. Of course, we never think that way, though, do we? We all we can see is the short-term gain, like what's right in front of me, and we never envision the long-term pain. Generally speaking, we are horrible at estimating or even considering the consequences of our actions. I see, I do. I want, I take. You know, when uh, I was in college, we were having some construction done on our house, and and uh, one of the workers got into my room and he took the checkbook off my desk and quickly wrote off uh, a whole bunch of fraudulent checks on my uh, bank account. He got caught, of course, uh, pretty quickly. And he had certain consequences to face as a result. But his actions had a, an impact far beyond his own uh, criminal record. Right? Because after that experience, I found myself more suspicious anytime someone comes into my house, more hesitant to let people into my room, more worried and concerned anytime someone was there. I need to hide these things. I need to be more careful of all this. And you multiply that out across families and communities, and, and everything over time slowly gets darker and more cynical and more hopeless. And that's not the way that God wants us to live, right? Constantly assuming the worst of everyone. You can't build anything that way. 
The kingdom of God doesn't expand through cynicism and suspicion. But when we fail to recognize or call out or fight against a culture that overlooks, diminishes, or accepts petty theft, that's exactly what happens. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, but our culture condemns theft, right? I see people get uh, arrested all the time. Sure, for the people who get caught, for the people who are still convinced that Target doesn't have a camera scanning every corner of the store. I'm like, what are you thinking, trying to shoplift there? Or for the businessmen who embezzle millions of dollars and you see these famous news stories. But I'm talking about the dozens of little ways in which we are all tempted to take what isn't truly ours. When the cashier at Jewel accidentally skips an item during scanning or, or we purposefully uh, do the self-checkout line a little too generously or uh, someone gives you too much change at the store or this one was new to me, we, uh, we have a patio umbrella in our backyard, and we were missing the little screw that attaches it to the base. And so we went to this outdoor goods store, and, and the lady in there was like, oh, people walk in here all the time. They, they just take them right off the shelf. They just go up to the stands, unscrew them, stick them in their pocket, and walk out. She's like, but I mean, we're not going to, we can't even chase them down. Like, this happens so often. She was astonished we would ask for that. She's like, oh, I, well, I'll just give it to you, <laughs> you know? That may seem small, but it's still theft. It's a violation of God's law. Now, obviously, there's a difference between stealing a little 50-cent set screw and a, and a $50,000 car, but the underlying principle is the same. And we are so quick to excuse dozens of similar tiny examples of theft all the time. And that's why God says clearly and unequivocally, thou shalt not steal, because it corrupts our relationship with God and it corrodes and eats away at our relationships with other people. Now, our second question pushes a little deeper. I want to know, like, what drives us to steal? If this is so bad, if it destroys our relationship with God and impacts our relationships with other people, why would we do this? God hates it. What's going on in my heart? Now think back to when I was a teenager. I think obviously there's sometimes like a little bit of an adrenaline rush associated with doing something that's kind of illegal, but you know, no one's really getting hurt and just a desire for a, a cheap thrill. But I want to look at three more pressing reasons that lead people to take what's theirs. And first is desperation. Now, I'm not talking about forgetting your lunch and in desperation stealing your coworkers out of the fridge. I'm talking about uh, real desperation and poverty. You know, before I got married, we, uh, I lived in downtown Chicago, and I was in the process of moving, and in between apartments, I had left a suitcase in, uh, in the back seat of my car. It turned out it just had a bunch of shoes in it. But um, I went into a store or restaurant, I can't remember, came out, and someone had smashed the rear window uh, and taken the bag with them. Not the stereo, not the wheels on the car, not the car itself, uh, just the suitcase with the sneakers in them. 
Uh, honestly, I was kind of confused. I was like, what were they thinking? Like, did they think I had like a bag full of gold bullion in there or like, like a swads of $100 bills? Were they watching too many movies? But then the sarcasm kind of quickly morphed into sadness as I thought about the desperation that would drive someone to do that. I wanted to tell him, look, I would have given you, if clothes is what you needed, I, I would have given them to you. I don't know if it was money or clothes or whatever they were looking for, but the character of that crime was dramatically different than the, the, that of the, the, the teenage kids who broke into our car one night after we were married and took my wife's purse and, and wallet and everything else and all the other cars in our neighborhood too. That felt decidedly more calculated. You know, desperation is described as a powerful motivator in Proverbs 6 where we read, people do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry, but if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. Look, some crimes really do have motives that are understandable. Everyone knows that, right? Financial hardship, poverty, hunger, these can all lead to theft. There's a huge difference between someone stealing something because they covet it, they just really want it, or they feel like they deserve it, and someone who steals some food simply because their family needs it. Now, stealing is still wrong, right? God's word is clear. It's understandable, but if they're caught, they're still going to be punished. But here's why this matters for you and me, because desperation isn't a problem that's limited to people living on the streets in abject poverty. Financial stress can push just about anyone to stink of theft as being their only remaining option. Genuine needs in our own lives, legitimate, genuine needs, can often lead to illegal actions. And so we have to be on guard whenever we find ourselves in a tight spot financially. Now, a second closely related motive that often leads people to, to take what isn't theirs is a lack of trust in God. Essentially, we're talking about a fear of the future, which, again, is, is often quite understandable, right? We live in a fallen world where the rich and powerful often abuse and take advantage of the poor, where bad things seemingly happen to good people, where might often makes right, and where tomorrow isn't promised to anyone. One of the most popular Bible verses, uh, memory verses in the Bible is Proverbs 3, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on uh, your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Easy to say until you get a chronic illness or you lose your job or you end up in debt or your friends abandon you. But taking something that isn't yours it's the very definition of leaning on your own understanding. It's in those moments, it's like, it's like the whole world narrows down and, and taking this thing, whatever it is, it's an, an idea, an essay, a, a toy, a phone, someone's stuff, it becomes the only solution that you can think of in that moment. Our sinful, finite, fallen, corrupted minds convince us this is not just the only way to go. This is now the best 
way to go. I become the only voice that I'm listening to, which is why God constantly in his word is telling people, trust me alone, trust me alone. Jesus says in Matthew 6, right, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? That's not an abstract philosophical principle because unchecked fear and anxiety will lead you to cut corners and take everything into your own hands. So I think it's better. Take a lower grade on an assignment rather than stealing someone else's work to get an A. Taking the lower grade is, is a demonstration of trust in God's sovereign plan for your life, which may look really different than it does for the person next to you. But that requires a ton of faith in God's providence. So desperation and lack of trust can both lead to faith, but so too can just plain greed. And a clear example from the Bible of such greed is, uh, is King Ahab's desire for Naboth's vineyard, right? Like King Ahab sees this, this beautiful plot of land next to his own. He's like, I want that. I'm going to take it for a vegetable garden. And so he goes to Naboth. He says, I'll buy this for you. Name the price, whatever you want. And Naboth says, no way. This is my ancestral land. I'm not giving this to you. And so Ahab goes into a tailspin. He's described as sullen and angry and sulking, like a, like a little kid whose parent won't give them a new toy. And then Jezebel comes in, and she's like, hey, you're the king. You get to do whatever you want. I, let me tell you how this is going to go down. And they cook up this plan to have Naboth killed, and then Ahab takes the property as his own, stealing it. But here's the thing, even if Ahab and Jezebel were convinced they had pulled the wool over everyone else's eyes, clearly nothing escapes God's view. And Elijah comes to him, comes to them both, and prophesies horrible deaths for both of them. Greed is a cancer which consumes and consumes and is never satisfied, always wanting more. And theft is simply the fastest way to slake that thirst. Think about it. When Nathan confronts King David about his affair with Bathsheba, he couches it in the language of greed. He says, look, God gave you everything that you could ever possibly want, and yet you took the one thing that God, that was not yours to take. The prophets repeatedly condemn the people of Israel for their greedy abuse of the poor. The New Testament, likewise, is filled with warnings about the love of money and the desires of the flesh and pride in possessions. I bring this up because although Ahab and David are these extreme examples, greed can manifest itself in all sorts of more subtle ways today. We might call it uh, entitlement now, right? Basically, anytime you find yourself thinking, I deserve this. I've earned this. I have a right to this. 
But the truth is, life doesn't owe you anything at all. And thinking otherwise can lead you to a place where you end up rationalizing or, or explaining away stealing as, as acceptable or somehow even necessary. Like I said, these, these are just three danger zones where we might find ourselves tempted to take what is, what's not ours. There are many others. But the point is that nobody is immune. And even the strongest person under the right combination of pressures in the right circumstances can fall prey to this sin. So we talked about why you shouldn't steal and what drives people to steal, but we have to push one step further because every prohibition here in the Ten Commandments comes with an implied admonition about how we should be acting. So, in other words, it's not enough to just sit back on your easy chair and say, hey, I haven't stolen anything. Check. Move right along. We have to push a little deeper and consider what does it look like to actively live a sort of do-not-steal kind of life? Well, first and foremost, stop stealing. Right? Like, commit to being more honest from this point forward. Refuse to take what isn't yours. But secondly... If you haven't always been super consistent in this area, I want you to know that there really is forgiveness and redemption available to those who turn to Christ for help. You can be set free from the the guilt and the, the shame of past sin if you confess what you did wrong, if you turn away from those actions and attitudes. And of course, in some cases, that may also mean seeking to make right any wrongs that you've committed. So we have the example of Zacchaeus we heard about before the sermon, the despised chief tax collector who promises not just to give half his possessions back to the poor, but to repay all those he, whom he defrauded four times over. So if he had stolen $10 from you, he's promising to give back $40 evidence of a life radically transformed by an encounter with Jesus. Maybe for you that means returning a tool or a toy or buying a new one for the person you took it from or returning some money you borrowed and then kept and never repaid. Maybe that means offering to pay someone for the shared use of their Netflix account. Even if it seems small, right? These little actions are the ones that slowly pile up over time, forming and shaping your character, crafting an identity that is either increasingly more and more like Jesus or increasingly more and more different and distant than our Lord and Savior. And in this context, even the, the seemingly insignificant moral and ethical decisions can have a huge, lasting, long-term impact in our lives. But there are other ways for us to live a do-not-seal kind of life as well. Think back to some of the internal heart motivations we talked about a few moments ago, right? Uh, desperation and greed and fear and lack of trust, and then just flip those around. So, for example, like, what can you be doing to help those who are in a position of desperation and dire need? That's not an easy question to answer. 
but it's not something we can just ignore and gloss over either. We were on a vacation recently, and, and every day there was a homeless man lying on the beach near our spot. And what do you do with that? Like, I'm embarrassed to say I did nothing. <laughs> just full disclosure, I was overwhelmed by it. I'm on vacation. I'm like, I don't know. And so I just ignored it. My sister-in-law, though, she was amazing. She put together a whole sack lunch for him and, and a cold drink and went down and tried to give him this meal. And I said, like I said, poverty is a complex problem to try and solve. And you know what? He rebuffed her efforts at kindness. He is like, nope, don't want it. Take your food, not interested. So that didn't really work his plan. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. God is deeply concerned about those who are too weak or poor to take care of themselves. Proverbs 14, 31 says, right? Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Or Proverbs 28, 27, whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. So what can we do? Don't hide your eyes. Find organizations or, that you trust and work with them to help alleviate needs. I, I know Outreach Community Center right over here in Carroll Stream, they do an excellent job of ministering to the poor and, and needy in our community and, and supporting their work financially or through volunteer hours is a, a simple way to help others avoid breaking the Eighth Commandment. Of course, poverty may lead some to steal, but on the flip side, so can, can greed, right? And the only true antidote to greed is generosity. So read in 1 Corinthians 9. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one may give, must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Generosity, it rescues us from greed because it shifts the focus away from me and onto somebody else. Right? Giving of my money, my time, my possessions to someone else, it keeps me from obsessing about my own needs and wants and desires. In other words, generosity isn't just about helping other people, it's helping me. It's protecting my heart from the deceitfulness of wealth. Whereas greed keeps me trapped in this quest to constantly acquire more and more and more and more, generosity sets me free on the path to want to give more and more and more. Because it's fun. <laughs> The more you give, the more exciting it is to be able to bless others and to provide for their needs. It's, it's good for your soul. God loves a cheerful giver, and giving cheerfully brings a deep and lasting joy that can never be achieved through any material goods or possessions. And one final way we can live a do-not-steal kind of life it's a little trickier for us, but it's by learning to identify and battle against fear and uncertainty in our own lives. Learning to trust God even in times of difficulty. 
So Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Our tendency is to skip the first part about seeking the kingdom and just go straight to adding more things unto ourselves, legally or otherwise. Hence this commandment. And as we already discussed, this often derives from an underlying fear or anxiety or lack of trust in in God's ability to provide for us what we think we need. So how do we combat this? How do we seek first the kingdom of God? Well, first, learning to give generously to others is a very tangible way to do that, to put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. But battling fear takes more than just sticking a check into the tithing box, right? The spiritual battle involves learning to die to self and live for Christ. How do I begin to put the needs of other people in front of my own? So what does that look like? Well, seeking the kingdom in that case means learning to pray for other people's needs before my own, where spend hours praying for the things that we need and we're worried about, and that's okay. But we need to pray just as much or more for the needs of other people around us, training our hearts to be consistently externally focused instead of turned in only on our own needs and desires. Seeking the kingdom means not just praying for others, but serving others as well. So there's literally two or dozen different ways that we can serve each other here at church on a Sunday morning, right? But we can also serve each other during the week as people need help with moving or remodeling or with meals or babysitting. Finally, seeking the kingdom means learning to live a life of humility and sacrifice, where instead of winning at all costs, we're prepared to lose it all for the sake of Christ. Where we stop trying to control the future and trust that God, in His sovereignty, will indeed see all things through to completion, according to His plan, not our own. So I want to close today by simply reminding you of this, that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No sin, not even stealing, is beyond the scope of the cleansing power of his cross. And no spiritual force is greater than the tenacious love of Christ. And so may you take comfort in the rest and the peace that Jesus offers your souls and be strengthened by the power of his Holy Spirit working in your hearts and lives and families and in our community and church this week. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so thankful that you love us, even in the midst of our brokenness, as our hearts wander and stray and covet and, and greedily seek out and desire and take and steal. Lord, you reach out to us and bring healing and forgiveness and blessing and new life and cleansing and hope 
and strength to live differently for you as a result. Lord, thank you for that gift, and I pray for your help to obey your word and your, live in your commandments this week. In Jesus' name, amen.